Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I'm Joe List, and I appreciate you being here and listening. This is exciting. I'm back. We're back. You're back. Took last week off for Thanksgiving. Hope you had a great, healthy Thanksgiving. It's possible you don't even know if it was healthy. You might still be waiting to get the results of your test or feel symptoms of COVID. It's really spiking out there, I guess, uh, from what I hear. Hopefully everyone is doing okay and staying safe and healthy. I uh, went home because I'm a bad person. Saw my parents and some extended family. But the extended family we saw outside. We were outside. I think that's fine. Of course, then we went inside, but whatever. Um, Hopefully everyone's, you know, is healthy, your loved ones and you. And I uh, appreciate you being here. Sorry, there was no episode. We actually had an episode recorded, but uh, I'm so excited about this episode. I didn't want it to get lost in the Thanksgiving shuffle. Although people might listen to podcasts more Thanksgiving weekend because they're either A, not visiting their families, or B, hate their families. So, But anyways, we took the week off. I'm back, and so are you. So thank you for listening. I hope that you're doing well. I already kind of said that. I'm doing all right. I think I'm doing well, actually. You know what I have right now? I'm recording this on Monday. I got the Monday back to regular life blues. You know when you take the vacation and you just turn everything off and I didn't look at social media or the news for several days and now I'm back and I feel like, oh, Jesus, I got to do things, but nothing too crazy. And uh, also, I might be going to Aruba this weekend, but I haven't gotten my passport because it expired in July. Why am I telling you this? Just to let you know that uh, I'm lonely. No, um, I don't know. I'm stressed. It's, 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 it's an interesting situation. I may be flying to Aruba on Saturday, and I may not be. And uh, it's giving me anxiety, but that's the future is unknown. Hmm? Am I right? I am right. We never know. Although it feels like we kind of know, but we don't. So... I don't know. Will my passport come? That is the question. It's like a little cliffhanger. Anyways, how are you doing? Let me know. Some people sent some nice messages, emails, reviews of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it? Appreciate it. I'm grateful to you and I'm grateful to the letter R that I just reinserted into that word where it belongs. Siren going by. Not sure if you can hear it, but... I'm grateful I'm not uh, the reason that siren is going by. Pretty much I'm just rambling now. We had a great episode. I'm so excited. Uh, This fella named William Irvine, uh, who goes by Bill, as you'll hear in the episode. Or maybe that was before we started recording. Anyways, he wrote a book called A Guide to the Good Life that I Love. He is, um, I guess you would say, an expert on stoicism. Um, He's the author of that book, A Guide to the Good Life, which I highly recommend. Uh, I talked about it before. I think I've shown it off on this podcast, particularly the episode with Shafi Hossein. We talked a lot about um, stoicism and I mentioned Bill quite a bit. And I know I've recommended that book. He has another book that he talks about in the episode that I'm about to order called The Stoic Challenge, A A Philosopher's Guide to Becoming Tougher, Calmer, and More Resilient. And uh, he's a pretty brilliant guy. He has a series. I first heard about him on Sam Harris's podcast or is um, 
I don't know if it was actually his podcast. It was on the Waking Up app, which is another thing I highly recommend. And uh, Bill and I talk about it on the episode. I probably mention it every episode. It's been hugely helpful to me. But uh, they had a conversation on there, and I thought it was fantastic. It's in my favorites pile of the Waking Up app, and that's what inspired me to buy the book. And I also sent that book to Robert Kelly, another friend of mine, and they really enjoyed it. So highly recommend that book and that conversation between Sam and uh, Bill. And he also does a series now on the Waking Up called The Stoic Path, which I love and highly recommend. We talk about a lot of the things in there. So get some William parentheses, Bill Irvine, or Irvin. I think it might be Irvin. Shit. I think it's Irvin. Get some Bill Irvin in your life. And I reached out I reached out to uh, a bunch of people who have written books, and um, I've heard conversations that I loved, and he was the only one that got back to me, and he got back to me right away. And uh, I think that uh, he's eager to spread this uh, message that's been so helpful to him and so helpful to me of uh, stoicism. And like I said, my friend Shafi, that's a great episode if you haven't listened to it. He's really into it as well. So um, yeah, I highly recommend it. Anyways, he's a he's a philosopher uh, and a, what do you call it? Um, I'm so dumb. You're going to hear me be really anxious throughout this episode and insecure that I'm a big dummy. And uh, we talk about that, of course, as well. What do you call the person at college? Uh, lecturer, philosopher, professor. There it was. Oof, that was rough. He's the he's a professor, I believe, at Wright State in uh, Dayton, one of my favorite cities. And um, he's an author, professor, all around smart guy. I should stop delaying and just let you have it. Um, anyways. I don't know what I have. Oh, Philadelphia. I'm in Philadelphia, January. Oof, when is it? Let me look that up too. This might be the worst intro I've ever done. January 7th through the 9th. Hopefully we're done spiking by then and things have settled down a little bit. I got hope for this vaccine. I don't know. You guys got hope? I hope you have hope. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. No good thing ever dies. Shawshank Redemption. All right, we better get to the uh, episode but I got a nice stoicism quote for you here because I want you guys to be part of this movement that's, I don't know, very old. Hundreds of thousands of years old. I don't know. This is Seneca talking. Life is very short and anxious for those who forget the past, neglect the present, and fear the future. All right, folks, let's try to be in this moment and accept what comes our way. Thanks for listening. Sorry for rambling. Enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Bill Irvine. Thank you. I am here with, as, as requested, Bill, Bill Irvine. I wanted to call you William, and I, I feel like I, I came in too official with calling you William, and now I feel bad. I'm just Bill, just, just plain old Bill. All right. Well, welcome, Bill. I'm thrilled to have you. I was just saying this before we started recording, but I thought it was an interesting way to start also. Sorry, that was my wife leaving. 
um, just leaving the room. She's not leaving me permanently. I don't good, think. Good, good, excellent. Um, but so I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of yours. I I first heard you on Sam Harris's Waking Up app. He did a you guys had a conversation together that was amazing. I thought, and then it, he encouraged me to buy your book, or that conversation did um, a guide to the good life. I think it's called, and I bought it for a couple other people. And now you do this series on the Waking Up app where you do sort of 10 to 15-ish minutes about stoicism. And it's been really extremely helpful to me. But ironically, now here I am talking to you, interviewing you, and I have all this anxiety that I'm going to be a terrible interview. I'm not a journalist. I'm a comedian. And uh, you're an intellectual. I feel like an idiot. I hate myself. So it's sort of ironic. I'm hoping you can calm me down over my anxieties of interviewing you. Oh, we'll work through that. That's something. So you you just uh, jump in. I'm a very friendly person to be interviewed. Oh, by the way, uh, I had my um, my own similar uh, experience two weeks ago. Um, uh, one of my fav- favorite podcasts is Hidden Brain Podcast. And they said they wanted to interview me. And I thought it'd just be a little snippet, but it's uh, Shankar Vedantam, which if you're a fan of uh, hidden brain podcast it, uh, you know, he's he's their voice he's the one who who did it and uh, we ended up uh, spending nearly two hours talking but for me it was an out-of-body experience right because here's this voice I've been listening to all these years always talking to somebody else and now he was talking to me and wasn't that strange uh, and so when it was when the, uh, the interview had ended I said, uh, okay, uh, so now I get to wake up from the dream and realize that it was all just a dream. And he said, no, let me assure you, it was real. So it, it's strange how that works, you know, and that whole, when you're meeting somebody, you know, when at the beginning, when I said, I'm, I'm just Bill. Um, so I really, really like to be taken just as another person. Uh, I don't like uh, whatever reputation I have, you know, I'm a professor and everything else. Um, I don't like to throw that around. Uh, You know, judge me on what you see. Judge me on what's before you. Judge me on on what you've read. And, uh, And that's all I ask. So in this case, calm down, calm down. I just think of me as I guess it looks like I would be what an older brother. All right. And we're gonna have a chat. Yeah. Okay. That that does help. Uh, we we could be uh, siblings. Sure. We'll, we'll we'll go with it. And uh, but my my fears are always. And maybe you can help me with um, stoicism. Well, maybe we can just give a little bit of intro because maybe people some people may not be as familiar with you as as I am. Okay. Um, could you tell people you you wrote a book called you've written several books. I've read one of them um, called. I think there's a subtitle, a guide to the good life, or maybe that is the subtitle. What is the actual, the full title of the book? The ancient, uh, it's a guide to the good life, the ancient art of stoic joy, and it's published by Oxford University Press, but it's in their trade division. So it's it's not written as a textbook; it's written f- for general audiences. Um, and there's a sort of a backstory to it. Um, the book I wrote before that, also for Oxford University Press was titled On On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. I wrote that thinking that I wanted to become a Zen Buddhist and thinking uh, and doing research on that and then thinking, well, there's a book here where I could talk about different philosophies on living. 
And um, then it dawned on me that for it to be a book, I had to have some balance. So I would consider other philosophies for living, stumbled across Stoicism and found it worked wonderfully well for me. And it also, it's a lot easier to test drive than Zen Buddhism is. So this isn't a put down of Zen Buddhism, but if you wanna give Zen Buddhism a fair try, you do extensive meditation maybe four months, maybe four decades, hoping you get your moment of enlightenment. But my standard joke on this is you can test drive uh, stoicism on a three-day weekend, right? You, it, it's all, all the time it takes for you to learn the basics and to, to try them out. You know, there's some basic psychological techniques. You can try them out, give them a test drive. You'll know pretty quickly whether they're gonna make a difference in your life or not. So it, it has a, a really low entry price. And it also, although there are certainly people who try to make it into something really deep and prof profound and mysterious, but uh, it, it, it really isn't. I mean, it's uh, th these people were, were simply saying, look, we have some psychological insights and we have some, some really neat strategies you can use to put them uh, to work in your own life. Are you going to have profound moment of enlightenment? No, no. But you know what? You might find that it helps you reduce the amount of anger you're experiencing, the amount of anxiety you're experiencing. Um, if you're experiencing grief, it might help you avoid or overcome grief. Uh, and the, the wonderful thing is they came up with these insights um, 2,000 years ago, but, you know, human psychology hasn't changed in all that time, so they're, they're still applicable today. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I got into, I, I've been a person that's always been uh, riddled with anxiety, fear, uh, panic disorder, panic attacks, alcoholism, all kinds of fun mental things. Um, and I always was interested in the idea or drawn to the idea of meditation and Zen, just hearing, not knowing about any of those things, but just hearing about it, the idea of sitting and calming because I had so much desire to quell, uh, fear and anxiety and all those things. Um, so I first went into the, when I was really struggling and, and when I first got sober from alcohol, I was like, I got to figure out a way to deal with anxiety, pain, fear, all these things. And so I went to the Eastern philosophy section of the bookstore and I saw Zen mind, a beginner's mind, I think Suzuki. And I, I read that book, but, and I got into Alan Watts, the wisdom of insecurity. And then that sort of led me into Thich Nhat Hanh and Thich Nhat Hanh seemed a lot, his books have always been a little more um, applicable. They seemed a little more simple, but cause some of the Zen stuff can get a little bit, you know, yeah, too yeah. much for me. And I go, I don't know what the hell any of this means and it becomes confusing and then meditation the same way you can get a little um i'm not doing it right and self-critical um eventually i i've, I've figured out a, a meditation practice through Thich Nhat Hanh and then i discovered jack cornfield and tara brock okay. and all these great meditation teachers um but uh stoicism i first heard about through the sam harris app which i can't remember if i mentioned after we started recording, but he had a long conversation with you and that brought me to stoicism. And as he says, I think in that conversation, the two go together pretty well, mindfulness, meditation yes. and stoicism. Yeah. So yes, they're, they're complementary. It's like chocolate and coffee, right? They're, they're just made to go with each other. Uh, uh, Henry Shookman, 
uh, is a, a Zen, a Buddhist, a Zen master. He also does one of the uh, interviews on um, on on Sam Harris's "The Waking Up, Not the Making Sense." You know, he's got this two-sided kind of thing is one is very political and the other is um, is kind of zen-like and meditation oriented and I've talked to Henry um, and uh, I asked him I said look are these two things compatible can you do both and he said yes right just you know and you expect for there to be some profound deep answer he said yeah the fit is really nice and you know I would also advise any stoic who wants to really understand what's lurking behind stoicism it's uh, an understanding of human psychology and the best five minute understanding of human psychology you can get is to do your first meditation where the exercise is you're going to find a place without a lot of distractions uh, you don't have to sit on the floor but you're going to sit in a comfortable chair uh, without distractions your cell phone has to be off and you're going to simply not think for five minutes and um, what you'll quickly discover is that thoughts are flooding into your mind all the time. And some of them are thoughts about the past, about something somebody said or, or did. Some of them are thoughts about the future. You start, you realize you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. And, uh, and, and that's the human situation. You're forced to live your life trapped into a skull with these voices and uh the interesting thing is when an idea pops into your head you take ownership of it you say well it's in my head so it must be what i think but in fact you are a multi-sided individual you have a an emotional component and you have a this reptilian component and um it's a product of human evolution it's just kind of a, a side consequence of the way we evolved but that's what those voices are doing there you've also got a rational component which should be in charge right it's it's the brains but in fact a lot of times all it does is it um helps those those irrational components get what they want it, it it's like the lackey you know who says oh if that's what you want right Here's a way. Uh, here's a way to get it. And let me um, throw in two comments here at this point before we move on. Uh, first, um, you know the, the idea of you talked about your uh, your anxieties and so on. Uh, see, that's the interesting thing because from the outside perspective, because uh, I, I did a little bit of a background check on you before I did this. Um, no. Uh, other people would look at you and say, "My God, the self confidence that guy must have." in order to do the kinds of shows he's done to go on you know these big name shows and do that he must be one of the most self-confident people on the planet that's the interesting thing you know you've got that internal perspective and then there's the view from outside second thing is um so I'm a doctor, but I'm a doctor of philosophy. <laughs> so, you know, that means you should kind of discount what I have to say if I'm giving you uh, any kind of advice. But I mean, my standard advice when people say, um, I've, got, uh, I've got these tendencies, I've got these psychological things uh, uh, going on. And when I hear that, then, uh, and, and they say, what would a Stoic have to say? And the answer is, well, 
Um, there is a talking therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, and there are a few variants on that that are based in Stoic uh, philosophy. And what they do is they take the things that trigger you and try to desensitize you uh, to those things. They try to come up with you rationally thinking through the things that you have the internal fears of. Uh, and I have heard and read that they're, they're highly effective if what you have is, is typical, uh, the, the human foibles. You know, there's just something you can't bring yourself to do, a fear of flying, a fear of elevators. And then I said I was going to do two, but I'll, I'll throw in the third as well. Uh, and that is the alcoholism. And of course, any kind of drug uh, dependency is um, going to simply take a large part of the rational component of your brain out of the game, or it's going to be more of a lackey uh, than it ever was. Uh, so I, uh, I come from a long line of alcoholics. I don't think I've ever uh, officially been an alcoholic, not that you can officially be, but I certainly was a social drinker until January of this year when my doctor put me on a medication, said, you know what, uh, this is incompatible with alcohol. So uh, I haven't had uh, anything to drink since then. Uh, it's made a profound difference in my life. Now, again, what, what kind of drinker was I? Oh, gee, a glass of wine uh, at dinner, carefully measured to six ounces, and maybe a small, you know, bit of uh, uh, whiskey or scotch, you know, after. That was it. But uh, my sleep is much better. My dream life has, has just taken off. I feel much more productive in the days. Uh, and I don't really miss it. It's a curious thing. Uh, I, is that tied in with stoicism? No, I don't think so. You know, and I was doing everything wrong. I like to think I'm a smart guy, but I'd wake up in the middle of the night, not realizing, well, it's because of what you had before you fell asleep, not realizing that, that human sleep comes in stages, that there's this thing called second sleep. It's, it's kind of the natural thing because <clears throat> we evolved, right? Our ancestors lived in trees and it was important that the whole group not all be asleep at the same time because then somebody's going to get eaten, right? Uh, so what, what do you do? You have this kind of broken sleep where there's a good chance that uh, throughout the night there'll be somebody awake. And if there's something creeping up, that person that would have been a human ancestor of some kind could give the warning. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but I'm going to shut up here and let you ask some more questions. Well, so, so there's a, a lot here or a lot there, but to the, the alcoholism thing, it feels like I'm somebody that's, uh, actively sober and in recovery. And it feels like stoicism is sort of, uh, in there a lot really with recovery. The idea of a big part of sobriety is the serenity prayer, grant me the serenity that's to stoic the things i cannot change and yeah yep. and the courage to change the things i can the wisdom to know the difference which feels like it's very stoic it's a ripoff <laughs> i guess we stole that one yeah and and also um a practice in, and maybe we can kind of get into this and there's a few different terms you use um to describe different meditations and methods but one thing I do a lot in in sobriety, and at, this feels uh, affiliated with stoicism in, in ways too, is I'll sit here and go, boy, I've got all this anxiety. I'm going to see my family and they can trigger my anxiety or I'm afraid of uh, confrontation or I have a, to write this, whatever. I have, I have a deadline of a podcast or 
um, whatever, whatever it is, whatever kind of work stress, I do have this continuous thing going, well, imagine if I was drinking, how much worse this would be oh, if I yeah. was drinking, which and you would need to recover afterwards and you'd recover with, uh, with drinking. Drinking is both the, the cause of the pain and it makes the pain go away. So it's the perfect insidious cycle to fall right. into. Yeah. So, so, but those principles are sort of similar to, to stoicism in that. So I'm dealing with this problem, but to kind of think about how much worse the problem could yeah. be is, is, is one of the sort of foundations of stoicism or one of the practices. Is that right? Yeah. I call them strategies. I say, so first of all, uh, stoics did, uh, they did philosophy. They also did what was called science, but a very primitive kind of science. Uh, they did logic. Uh, your cell phone works in part because of the logical principles. They did propositional logic, you know, and or, uh, either or, if then. Uh, they were the first people to really get on top of that kind of logic. But they did psychology. They not only did it, but they were the uh, predominant psychologists of their era. And so I view myself as a kind of a hybrid creature. I do philosophy, but I've reached a stage where I read more psychology than I read philosophy. And then the, the realization that this is a really interesting uh, intersect between these two different fields. And so my primary interest in, in Stoicism is not in the deeper psychological content of it, but it's in the Stoic insights that they had. Interesting. Okay. So, and I, I wanted to go back to and talk about the thing with, um, with confidence, the idea of, it, it is, it is tricky. And I guess talking about psychology and you read a lot of psychology, there is the psychology of, I do have the confidence to go on to a TV show and do stand up comedy. Um, but I guess partly it's it's out of my comfort zone of interviewing somebody. I usually do the show with comedians and I'll go, I'll just talk to this comedian for a while. That'll be fine. Um, but I see you as obviously an intellectual, a professor, somebody who's written a book. I mean, the idea of a person writing a book to me is so daunting and insane, let alone a book about, you know, um, psychology or, or, or whatever it is. I'm just going, I'm going to come off like an idiot. I won't be able to fill this time. This person, I'm going to be wasting this person's time. So my anxiety comes from, from that or the stress of. Is it for, so question here. Um, sure. I mean, one thing I know is when I'm going to give a talk before a big audience, I, I guess what I, I could describe what I feel as anxiety, but, uh, and I've been, I've been asked that, are you anxious? Because people can sense and, you know, my, my reply is, no, I'm very focused. So there's a subtle difference between being anxious and being focused. And I guess another thing, when you talk about anxiety, it's a fear of failure. And one thing a Stoic will do as part of Stoic training, by the way, there is a, a follow-up book that came out a year ago called The Stoic Challenge, in which I go into this in greater detail, but it's Stoic training you're going out of your way to do things that expand your comfort zone. And this whole sense of self-confidence, that, that trait, you know, a lot of people think you're, you're born with it or you aren't, but no, it's, it's sort of like, uh, like lifting weights. If you want to get stronger, what do you got to do? You got to lift weights. What's the consequence going to be? You're going to get sore muscles, but if you want to get stronger, that's how you do it. If you want to gain self-confidence in some area, what do you do? you run the risk of failure and maybe even actually fail. And then you learn, wow, you know what? 
I'm still alive. I'm still here. Then to be a, a successful failure, and, and Stoics have this notion of a successful failure, to be a successful failure, number one, you've got to see what lessons you can learn from that failure that are going to help you in the future. And then number two, you got to put it behind you. It's history, you know, and you can't change history, but you can change what happens uh, tomorrow. Uh, uh, on, on talking to, uh, you know, interviewing a professor who's written books. Well, number one, let me assure you that there are professors who had written books that you could have had as guests who would intimidate you because I'm a professor who's written books and they intimidate the hell out of me, okay? Because it's always so, so deep, so, so deep and I'm just not, uh, I'm just not there. But the interesting thing is if you had it uh, in the future, if somebody said, okay, you're going to interview a professor who's written books, you know, your, your brain is going to say, oh, well, I've done that. That's no big deal. So there's a sense in which this is like lifting weights in an emotional sense. So you're desensitizing yourself. You sort of say, well, I've done that. Um, I don't advise for anybody to climb Mount Everest. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And if you've seen photographs taken uh, two springs ago or whatever, you know, you now have a 300 person line to get to the top, you know, uh, just people lined up. So it's a stupid thing to do. But I'll tell you this, if you've done it, and somebody poses you a challenge, you know, in the corner of your mind, you shouldn't be boasting about this. But in the back corner of your mind, you can say, hey, I climb, I climbed Mount Everest. So I'm pretty sure I could do that if I set myself to it. Right. So uh, I, that brought up a lot of um, thoughts uh, to sort of respond with is that that is one thing I've been pretty good at. And, I'm, and I am proud of is that um, my, and my therapist reminds me of this a lot is I'll go in there and say, I have so much fear. I have so much anxiety. I, I hate myself, all those classics. And my therapist is good about reminding goes, but look at all you've accomplished in yes. spite of that, despite all those things you managed to, you know, move to New York, start comedy, get on all these shows. I'm not going to do my whole resume, right. but I've done, I've done a lot of things. And even doing this podcast and taking the initiative to, to contact you and to set this up. So I am doing it and capable of doing it. And that's where it's fear is so interesting. And I've talked about this on this um, podcast before is I've had, I'll go to a doctor to have blood taken or the dentist and I I'm, I'm, have terrible fear of both things. And I'll, I'll warn the doctor and say, just to let you know, I'm deathly afraid of needles or, or getting stitches. And, and they'll say, well, what happens? What? And I go, well, nothing happens. I'm just afraid. I know. Yep. And they go, but are you going to pass out? Are you going to run? Are you going to punch me? And I go, yep. well, no, that's insane. They're like, oh, well, that's not. So you're just nervous. That, that's not really. So my point is, I'm much stronger, or more courageous than I think. It's just the actual fear. I realize some people they get blood taken, they'll pass out on the floor, or they'll run away, or they just physically okay. won't do it or can't do it. Uh, okay, let, let me pause. And, and I feel like I'm interviewing you. But here goes. This <laughs> is this is how, how it's gonna how it's gonna work here. First, do you feel like an imposter? Um, is that what's behind the fear? The fear that you're going to be discovered? Certainly in, in this realm, in this in interviewing somebody, yes. I mean, I don't know about blood taken. I don't know if I'll get discovered. 
as being a person uh, afraid okay, of no, blood yeah, taken. But. but that would be the, the, the first thing, because I know I feel like an imposter. Despite all of the things I've accomplished, I, I just, there's this voice in the back of my mind that says, you know, the rest of them are playing a different game than you are. They're better. And someday it's going to come to light and you're going to be revealed. Uh, it turns out that's fairly common. And so what does that mean? That means you're a human being. You're a human being and you're still alive, if that's what that means. Right. Now, the next thing about the fear of, you know, at the dentist, uh, so lately, um, in the last two months, I've had two different Mohs surgeries. This is when you have a skin growth. And it's a, a really low grade uh, kind of cancer, almost doesn't deserve the name cancer. It's so low grade. But what they do if they, they detect it, they um, surgically cut out the thing. And then to make sure they've gotten to the edge of it, they look at it under a microscope. So it's a, a weird surgery where you go in, they inject you with, uh, uh, you know, the painkiller. And then... Uh, do their surgery thing and then send you out. So now it's it's COVID. So you get to wait out in the parking lot. So I guess I did it back in August when it was hot. And I actually did it uh, last week. So we had to postpone this for a bit because uh, I was getting it done. And the interesting thing is now I've turned it into a kind of uh, game. So when they're about to inject me with the uh, painkiller, you know, they always give you a warning because they don't want to startle you. And so the warning is, okay, this is going to hurt a bit. And now the game is I look them in the eye and I say, no, it isn't. And then they stick it in. Okay, is this hurting? No, no. It's a really interesting thing. So I make it my point to observe the actual phenomenon, the actual physical sensation that I'm feeling. And I find that if you do that, it takes so much of the pain out of it. You realize, well, yeah, it's uncomfortable. I wouldn't want it if I didn't have to have it, but it's what it is. Um, in the book, um, um, The uh, Stoic Challenge, I describe the process of framing. Framing, how you frame an event in your life has considerable impact over what it does to you psychologically. So suppose, uh, here's a thought experiment, you're out, um, jogging through a park and suddenly you hear footsteps behind you and somebody tackles you and throws you to the ground. Uh, traumatic experience, you call the police, you don't go to that park ever again. Uh, you're always looking over your shoulder when you are out for walks. Uh, second thing, same thing, you're running across a grassy field, you hear footsteps from behind, somebody tackles you and throws you to the ground. Well, if it's in the course of a football game, an American football game, because we have to specify that, you know, what I've not played American football, but I see them jump up and do this little dance, this little celebration, because they gained eight yards before they were tackled. <laughs> Same physical sensations, right? Same feeling, physical feeling from the inside, but they put it in a different frame certain, a different psychological frame. Now, here's the key thing. You don't have complete control over what happens to you in life, but you do have considerable control over how you frame it. Uh, same thing is if somebody insults you, you can either take it to heart, in which case they win. If somebody insults you and it wrecks your day, they win. Uh, what's the other way to do it? The stoic advice is you shrug it off. Or better still, you turn it into a joke. You put it into a comedic frame. Uh, 
where, uh, you know, you say somebody said something about you and you respond by saying, you know what? Is that the worst you can say about me? If that's all you can say about me, then you aren't even qualified to be insulting me, right? In other words, you turn it around and they become the butt of a joke based on their own insult. You've right. defeated them. And much more important, you've prevented yourself from being emotionally impacted by the insult. So, so these were some of the brilliant insights um, the Stoics had, and they the, only in recent decades have, uh, you know, official scientific psychologists caught up to them. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky uh, have, have kind of quantified the whole framing effect and done a number of experiments involving it. And they've said, yep, it's real. It's there. Interesting. So that, that reminded me, the perspective thing, the football analogy reminded me of my, again, my therapist who's a brilliant guy, I think. Um, but he told a story about talking to one of his uh, clients or patients, whatever you call them. And, you know, the, his client, or I don't know what the word is. Is it patient? That doesn't feel right. He's not a doctor. Patient. Um, yeah, I think patient sure. would be the. Sure. His patient was saying, you know, was telling him a childhood memory of, you know, he grew up in a small town and he was walking home and there was bullies. And so he would walk the long way home to avoid these bullies. Yep. And he's like, and it, he's like, it says it, it still, he struggled with it to that day. He's like, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm just a scared person. And I, I just, I, I run away from fear. And my therapist grew up on the Lower East Side in the fifties. And he said, we had all these gangs and I would take the long way home and I was considered street smart. I'm a street yeah. smarts person for avoiding trouble. Yeah. And that was the same exact action. Just one person feels they're street smart and one person feels like a coward. Yeah. And, and your interpretation, and, and like I said before, your interpretation, I said to most people, if you said, well, I'm going to tell people this, I'm going to tell them that I, ha I, I was interviewed by, I had the honor of being interviewed by a comedian and then I'll try to uh, create a little crib sheet in my hand where I can hold it listing the, um, the shows you've been on. And they're going to say, wow, a successful comedian. You know how hard that is to do. Man, that guy must have nerves of steel. I mean, to get up there and not only be able to function, but be able to be funny under those circumstances. The way the outside world sees you is different from the way you see the outside world. Uh, Seneca, one of the Stoic philosophers has a great line on this. He says, you know, uh, or maybe it's Epictetus, it's one of them, but he said, uh, you know, you might break a cup and as a result, you might get angry at the broken cup and you might curse for a little bit and it might ruin the rest of your day. Uh, and his advice is, imagine that you saw someone else break that cup and imagine you saw them getting angry you'd say that person's a fool. It's just a stupid cup. Right. What's the big deal? So another thing you can do, and this is what you were, were just mentioning, is uh, view what you're doing from somebody else's perspective and, uh, and realize, by the way, uh, I think it wouldn't be a, a mistake to say there are thousands of people who would love to be in your shoes, you know, in terms of uh, being a successful comedian. And, uh, and then for them to look and, and see you saying, yeah, yeah, you know, but still, uh, 
well, you, you've kind of made it. You've kind of made it. Uh, I'm sure there's further you can go. I don't think you've had your own show yet, your own TV show yet. Who knows in the future? Um, but, uh, but that's the amazing thing, you know, j just the framing you put on it, the point of view you take has a profound impact on how it's going to affect you personally. The damage the world does to you is usually small compared to the damage you do yourself in response to what the, the world has done to you, the kind of emotional price. Uh, and in um, the Stoic Challenge, I, I have a, a plumbing analogy. If a, per, if a pipe bursts in your house, your big problem is not the burst pipe. The big problem is all the water released by the burst pipe. You know, and if it's on a second story uh, bathroom, um, you can get a floor collapse uh, beneath, uh, sorry, a ceiling uh, collapse beneath, and you can get all your furniture wet and dirty and everything else. But the same is true of when life uh, sets you back in some way. It's usually not the setback that hurts you. It's your own emotional response to the setback. If you get angry, it can uh, wreck your day. It can wreck your night. Uh, I've known people in nursing homes who can't remember what year it is, but they can tell you in detail about something bad that happened to them decades earlier. And that's scary. And um, Stoics thought they had a way to avoid those, those uh, kind of emotions and to avoid the impact that life's events can have on you. So again, I had this, so many... Um thoughts here and that reminded me of Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the the second arrow the analogy of you know if you get shot with an arrow it's very painful and then um the second arrow is, is that the worry the worrying about the thing that had already happened uh yeah. in the analogy you know whatever like you said a, a glass breaks and then the second arrow is god i how am i going to replace that glass it belonged to this person they're going to be mad but if i step on glass all that stuff is is the uh, the analogy of the second hour, the sort of interpretation of the thing that already um, Oh, I see, I see, I get you. So yeah, so uh, so guess what? I ripped him off, I didn't realize it. But, but that whole notion about what damages, what, if somebody insults you, it's just words, right. it's just words. I've got an exercise um, I do in the classes, uh, well, when I've got an actual live audience, uh, I work, but, but uh, so for instance, the most recent classes, I've been virtual for, for, so, you know, and it's really hard to do things without an audience. You can't see how they're responding, but I'm talking about the stoic response to insults. And I'm talking about how it's just, uh, it's just air, you know, it's just sounds uh, that an insulter is like a barking dog. If you let a barking dog ruin your day, you're a fool because it's just a, a dog and that's what they do. They bark and for you to take it personally, oh my God, that dog barked at me. He must not like me, that'd be crazy. So uh, I have an exercise that I've done a few times. I enjoy doing it. I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to do it, but do it anyway. And that is I tell the group, you know, and they're starting to question, well, no, you know, an insult is really something deep and, and, and sh you should feel it and everything else. So I say, okay, we're going to do an exercise. I want you to think of the worst possible insult you could inflict on me, right? And this might be 30 people in the class. And I said, you heard me. So I want you to think of what's the worst insult you could deliver toward me. And then I say, are you ready? 
you know, heads nod. And I say, okay, on three, you're going to unleash that insult. You're going to say out loud or, or even yell that insult. One, two, three. And then we get the uproar of the noise, right? And then I say, it's just noise, just noise. Now, on one occasion, I had one student, one of the actually better students, who said nothing just then, and he waited about three seconds, and then said in a low voice, old man. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is interesting, you know, because I'm a stoic practitioner, but I'm not perfect. And so it's interesting. So the first was just noise. You know, I can pick out the individual insult, but that last one that got in, yeah, sort of penetrated my armor a bit. Uh, so, but it, but it's uh, it's interesting. So you, you, it's the spin you put on what life delivers to you. Right. It sounds like that guy's like the comedian in the group. I, yeah. I appreciate him. Yeah. Um, but so I, I want to talk too about um, some of the other um, exercises. I, I think that's what you call them about. Um, I'm always interested in, in hearing you talk about, um, I forget how you, oh, negative visualization negative, is how you yep. put it, which I tried to write a, a, a joke about and it never worked because the idea of, of the bit was, and the idea of negative visualization, as I understand it, is to sort of wake up in the morning and I, I sort of imagine that, you know, my wife is laying next to me and she's passed away. Yep. And, you know, the joke I said was, I, I take it too far. I, I, I wake up and I imagine my wife has been bludgeoned to death and shot. And the crowd no, this just, just doesn't off. sound like a good premise to work from in no, comedy. The, the crowd was just appalled by yeah. me. They didn't know what the uh, philosophy was and all that stuff. But I, I do I do think there is something funny about, I guess, uh, funny or, or counterintuitive about getting joy or happiness out of the idea of thinking of your family is dead. Um, to me, I have a dark sense of humor, I guess, yeah. is, is funny. And, and trying to explain this to a friend of mine who has kids, and I'm like, just imagine that that little Joe is just gone. He's like, what? What are you doing? What are you, shut up. You're, you're, this, is, this is upsetting. And I'm like, oh, I didn't get the message properly. But for me, it, it makes sense to imagine that you know, all my, my my TV's broken, or my wife has passed away, or whatever it is, because you can be grateful for what you have. Is that essentially the exercise? Yeah. And by the way, there are Stoic comedians. I've never heard one. Um, uh, and you know, it's an interesting kind of process, but uh, it would be very difficult because uh, once you get people, see, here's the thing about first, what is negative visualization? Uh, you take a few moments to imagine the loss of something that you really value in life. That's a, an important part of your life. And it can be your job. It can be your, the place where you live. It can be your spouse or significant other. It can be your, your kids. It can be a friend, uh, right? Friendships end. And then you imagine a phone call where uh, you, you get the news, you know? Uh, you know, there's been an accident and, right? So you can fill in some of the details. Uh, now, here's the key thing. You don't dwell on that. You allow yourself to visualize that. It takes a few seconds, then back to life as normal. And the interesting thing is once you do encounter the person in question or the thing in question, you'll notice that you have a different approach to it. Uh, you, you'll be actually excited to see them because you'll realize how valuable they are to you. There's this um, kind of psychological phenomenon where whatever, well, we go through this cycle. We, um, 
We want something, we get it. And for a while, we're really happy because we got it. And then what happens? We start taking it for granted. And that's true with uh, the things we buy. That's true with our relationships. Uh, you start sort of saying, well, this is now what I can count on. So let's see what better thing I can get. Uh, and psychologists call it a hedonic treadmill. Um, how do you get off the treadmill? Um, well, the, the stoic insight was you get off it by learning how to want the things you already have. And then you don't have to always be getting something more. And uh, what does that mean? You, you learn to appreciate the things you already have. And so one device you can use to prevent hedonic adaptation is this negative visualization uh, technique. Uh, it, it's, it's free. You don't have to pay anybody to do it. It's easy to do. Um, it, it can be repeated as needed. Uh, so typically, um, uh, you, you can do it uh, one or two times in the course of a day, just to remind yourself. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic has had uh, deadly consequences for some people and dire consequences for many people, people who have lost their, their jobs. Um, but, but if you think of it in another way, what it's done is it's sh showed us how much we were taking things for granted by taking them away from us. Mm -hmm. In negative visualization, that's the beauty of it. You don't have the thing actually taken away, but you put yourself in a frame of mind of how you would feel if it were, and you come to truly appreciate it. So um, uh, my wife knows I've been negatively visualizing when she will, in the middle of an afternoon, hear me call out from the back bedroom, thanks for existing, because <laughs> she knows what the deal is. And it, it is amazing because I'll find my, my mind wandering and I'll realize, you know what, if this woman were not part of my life, my life would be um, measurably worse in many different respects than my life is. Yeah. So it really has been extremely uh, beneficial to me. And I love that term hedonistic adaptation. And um, that, that is something I do in, in sort of concert with meditation and mindful meditation is I'll sit and do a guided mindful meditation. And then I will sit and do that um, yep. negative visualization and sit here and go to think Someday I won't have any of these things, whether I'd be yep. dead or they, whatever it is. And, and there was a point where almost everything in my home, I wanted, I longed for it. Yes. I had, I had three roommates and I lived in a 14 by seven foot bedroom. And I thought, God, if I could just have my own place. And at one point I thought, boy, I wish I had a partner that was kind to me and loved me and attracted to me. And I, we, you know, did all those things in a relationship. I thought, boy, if I could just have enough money to cover my rent and, and all yep. of these things that uh, have happened. And, and you talk about a lot too. It's another exercise I love is to think about not just um, the, all, all the amount of people that would give anything to have what I have. I mean, literally over a billion people on earth yes. would kill just to have a, a, a toilet that works. Oh yeah. Um, and also the idea of people from the past to even think about, a century ago or even 75 years ago or 50 all those things the idea of there were no windows not that long ago right to be living you're, in a home you're with living the windows. their dream life and if your great 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 grandmother came to visit you she would assume you were in heaven right now right right yeah so all of those things have been extremely helpful but it is uh, um 
a practice. It feels like it does feel like you have to put that work in or come back to it because it's easy to lose sight of that and lose track yeah, of that. Yeah. So uh, one thing is I talked about test driving um, stoicism and part of the test drive would be to give negative visualization a try. Now I've given you the uh, speed, uh, you know, the 30 second description of it uh, in, in the, uh, either the the Stoic books I've written, there's a more uh, kind of detailed uh, explanation, a chapter length explanation of what goes into it. But it's important for listeners to realize that that it's simple. It isn't kind of like, uh, you know, this deep, mysterious thing, which someday you might understand and someday you, 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 but you probably won't and I can't reveal the whole thing to you. No, it's a simple, straightforward psychological technique. And you can try it in your own life and nobody needs to be any the wiser you know you can you can do it on the sly and you'll know very quickly whether it made a difference in your life or not so that's that's the beauty of it uh stoicism has a low entry fee uh you can the things you can try to find out whether it's going to work for you uh, are, are minimal uh, you can, it's, it's like this uh, ointment you, and, and the instructions say repeat as needed. And that's true of the, these, these techniques, they could be used, um, multiple times. Uh, so my wife and I will be out on a walk, you know, and, and I will engage in a low grade meditation. I'll look at the blue sky and, you know, I'll remind myself the sky didn't have to be blue. And isn't it just absolutely incredible that of the colors it could be, it's this particular shade of blue. I mean, so it, it gets into that, but that's all, you know, it's just something going on in your mind and to become more appreciative of the world uh, that you're living in. So uh, I encourage uh, listeners to, to give it a try in their life. And again, you don't dwell on bad things that can happen. Uh, you have a, you allow yourself to have flickering thoughts of the bad things that can happen. Yeah, and I I used to do that sort of a lot of stoicism. I feel like comes naturally to people and to a lot of people. I remember when I, I travel on the road. I used to in my old life pre-COVID, um, which, like you said, it did give me a. T I was working the road, doing comedy clubs every week. I think there was like twenty weeks in a row where I was gone um and now being home for eight months i'm like boy i miss putting my baggage in an yeah. overhead it's funny yeah um which i want to get to the the last time uh, sort of meditation and practice but i just wanted to add also the blue sky thing i would often on the road uh even before hearing about stoicism i naturally would walk around cemeteries because i think they're beautiful and i remember thinking and having this thought and and then actively having it afterwards is Boy, every single person here, every grave marked here would give anything to trade yeah. spots with me for a day. So whatever yeah. I have doing, I mean, these people are, are never coming back, never experiencing anything again. I, these people would kill to have a splinter right now. Um, so it, which is, I sort of had some idea of stoicism, I guess, in my head with not knowing about it. Yeah, there are people, I call them congenital stoics, who in some way or other just kind of figure it out. Um, along the way. And then when they when they read my book, so I get uh, uh, emails from people who say, well, you know, I already knew this, you're just giving it fancy names. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, I think there are other people for whom stoicism um, is challenging. And simply, uh, these are people who um, tend to be very anxious about about a variety of things. And I guess the you know, that there, there are certain behaviors that can be wired into you. 
and uh, stoicism is a rational behavior in this in the way that it isn't going to affect your wiring a bit but you're going to try to outthink your wiring you're going to try to take this wiring and make it work for you in beneficial ways um, so in the stoic challenge book i describe uh, uh, I say, you know, when you're set back, uh, it's, there's a mind game you can play and you can say, look, it isn't a setback. The stoic odds, imaginary stoic odds, are testing me to see whether I'm up to the task of dealing with this challenge. And you know what? I am. And I'm going to show them who's in charge. By doing that, you take these deeper internal emotions and you make them work for you. Um, so uh, they're, they're now your, your teammates in this competition against these stoic odds. By the way, the stoic odds do it not to punish you, but to strengthen you. And so they're like a good coach. You know, a good coach doesn't pamper athletes and tell them how wonderful they are. A uh, good coach toughens them so they can win uh, their next competition. Right. So now I, I also, I alluded to it. I also want to talk about um, the last time exercise okay. that you talk about a lot and this has been really helpful to me and again it's sort of that being mindful of everything that we do right what we will do for a, a last time in yep. our lives and we never know when it could be this could be the last podcast this could be your last for. interview this could be my last <laughs> interview uh, right. and you know what that that the uh, uh covid has a, a, a silver lining and one of them is that it's forcing a lot of people to kind of retroactively do the last time meditation, the realization that the last time they ate in a restaurant, well, and yeah, you know, they assumed, well, hey, let's make reservations for next Tuesday. Uh, and then it just never, never happened because the restaurant had to close for a long time and then the restaurant went out of business. So, uh, so now they're pining away and they're thinking if only boy, you know what, if, if that restaurant opened again, and I went in, it would be like coming home, it would be the best thing ever. Well, you can have that sensation, not the full blown form of that sensation, but a lower grade one, by simply when you're there at the restaurant, thinking allow and it, you don't dwell on it. So it's not, a, you don't do it for a half hour and, and ruin table conversation by talking about it, but you allow yourself to have flickering thought that given the way the world works, this could be the last time I eat in this um, um, restaurant, or this could be the last time I eat this particular food. Uh, and if you do that, uh, you prevent yourself from taking it for granted. And when you go back, it's sort of like, wow, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that absolutely wonderful? It's still here for me. Oh, and I'm still alive to appreciate what it's got to offer. Simple psychological device that can turn your life sideways in a very interesting way. Right. Yeah, that it, that exercise seems um, particularly um, beneficial or interesting, I guess, or poignant maybe for people with children. Yep. Where for me, it's it's strange. I have a niece and a nephew that are eight and four and they live in <clears throat> Seattle and I didn't get to see them for a year. And I'm thinking this is 20 percent of their lives have passed since I've yep. seen them last. So they're completely dip, not completely, but extremely different people. And I think Next time I see them, they'll be different. So I tried to really soak that in when I'm hanging out. But particularly the parents, there will be a last time that you pick up your kid and hold them yep. in your in your arm or the last time, you know, um, my my nephew says, um, 
I forget what word he was saying wrong. That was he, he says his name wrong. He says yeah, yeah. Joe Joe Fess instead of yeah. Joseph. And there will be a time where he no longer is saying Joe Fess. Yep. And uh, it's interesting that there will be a last time yeah, and he it, says that. A parent with a, a baby, you will change. I don't remember the exact number, but 7,000 diapers or some huge number like that. There'll be a last one. And there will come a time in your life when you'll look back at that last one and you might, you might tear up a little bit thinking about, you know, uh, I took that kid from coming out of my body to, uh, to now the adult that, that, uh, the, the kid is. And, uh, and that was the last time. Um, there is uh, an interesting phenomenon, and that is that this very moment in your life, there's a very good chance. And this isn't a special moment in your life, but there's a very good chance that the day will come in your life when you look back at this very moment and you'll regard it as the good old days. So imagine this, you know, you're 89 years old, you're in a nursing home, right? And your great, great grandchildren come in and say, great, great grandpa, we found something and we want you to watch it. And they play this interview back, right? right? And you're going to think, my God, those were the good old days. Well, these are the good old days. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember Carly Simon sang it right in the 1970s, but it's true, you know, and she was ripping off the Stoics, but it's true. These are the good old days. And you can say, well, no, my life, you know, and then you can start listing the things that aren't perfect in your life. Well, unless you're really lucky, there could very well come a time when you'll look back at the, at this very period in your life and say, wow, if only I could go back. Yeah, it's funny. I think that all the time. And I, I actually tweeted that earlier on during the quarantine. I was kind of laughing. I'm like, there will be a time. And I, I get with respect to people that have lost family members or, or passed away themselves, but they're not hearing this. But I thought there is a time where we'll look back on this time of quarantine. I was like, that was kind of fun. You'll look back when we, were, we oh, yeah. had nothing to do. We watched movies. And I think about that, and this is dark also, but I think about the few weeks after 9-11 and I go, boy, that was special. I mean, I was, we were all watching TV together and, and everyone felt so grateful to be alive and there was yes, pride in our country. Isn't that I mean, strange how that yeah. works? Yeah, there was really, you really look back and you're like, boy, that was, we had all these concerts and it was patriotic and man, that was yeah. kind of a special time. I feel grateful to have been an adult in that time. But every single moment of your life has a capacity that you will, can look back on it and feel that way about it. And you know, life's challenges when you're going through them and when you're fighting to come out successfully on the other end can be very, very difficult. But if you do make it out on the other side, you've got yourself a hell of a fine story to tell. Not that you need to go around boasting about it, but you know, you are faced with the challenge, you rose to the challenge. Um, so it's a, a kind of a form of heroism. What, what's bravery? What is bravery? Bravery is doing whatever for you uh, scares you to do it. That's what bravery is. And there are some people who are brave on some grand, grand scale and do things that we're all afraid of. But for you to take something that you're afraid of and do it, that's bravery. That's courage. And congratulations to you for the courage that you display. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate that. that I, I've also been taking mixed martial arts for that reason. As there I'm you go. Of confrontation, physical confrontation. And, and um, so I've been doing that. And I try to face these fears. I heard a, an analogy. I can't remember what the other animal was, but it was 
buffalo and some other antelope or something and there's one animal whatever animal b that i can't think of let's just say antelope they they if they see a storm coming they run from it they end up running the same speed as the storm and they stay in the storm for right longer and the buffalo heads straight into it and sort of fast forward and so my friend and i always say uh let's be let's be buffaloes today buffaloes yeah yeah <laughs> so, instead yeah uh, um, no, and uh, to to con- confront something, a great way to build self-confidence, right? You do something that you fear doing, you pop out on the other side, and you say, well, gee, I guess I have it in me. Uh, from the outside, it looks absolutely spectacular. Here's, here's the best way, if you, if you don't like failure, here's the best way to never, ever fail again in your life. Don't try anything hard. Right. Right? Right. And, you, and you're there. You're there. Uh, the other way is to find things that are hard to do, work very hard and thoughtfully, and, uh, over, and overcome whatever the obstacles are. Right. Then, you're, uh, you, then you're a success that way. But there's a risk of failure. Some failures can kill you. Don't do those. But a lot of failures, if you approach them the right way, they make you stronger. You pop out on the other side with confidence and competence right? From what you've learned from the, uh, the failure. Um, now, I'm not going to talk to you about your own experiences in, uh, in bombing uh, during a performance, but I've been re-listening to the whole episode of Comedians in Cars, you know, went on for, for many, many episodes. And one of the things they talk about is the bombing experience where, uh, you know, things aren't going well and the audience has stopped laughing uh, and so on. And there was one of the comedians um, not sure which, he said he found he, he had this strange response that when a bit was bombing, he would, would protract the bit. He would make it last longer. Uh, and just, he wasn't sure why, but just, you know, he kind of realized, oh, I'm bombing. And this is going to be a bombing story to tell. And uh, let's see what I can do with this uh, bombing thing. Um, I've reached a stage. I'm not a comedian. No, I will not attempt stand-up, all right? Um, but I've, I've found an interesting thing. So I have a, a severe weakness for wordplay, uh, you know, puns and all sorts of uh, variants of wordplay. And uh, what I've noticed is, strange thing, if people laugh, that's great. Making people laugh is absolutely wonderful. And if you have that ability, wow, you know, we, humanity needs that. Humanity needs that hugely. But I've noticed that when I do a wordplay and it bombs, and then people, my son in particular, who grew up on it um, and apparently um, has not quite adjusted to it, will roll his eyeballs or he'll say, Bill, you know, in disappointment. That almost is better than having him laugh. I'm not sure why. You know, it's perverse. It shouldn't be that way. But that's the interesting thing. A lot of things, the failures we feel, we fear, they aren't going to kill you. Yeah, no, that's, it's a, a valuable lesson. And um, I think about when I think about comics and, and, and learning from um, bombing, Dave Chappelle told a story on Inside the Actors Studio years ago about doing the night at the Apollo and famously tough crowds and they booed him off and they had the Sandman came and pulled him off stage. And he tells the story, he was a teenager. I think he was 13 or 14 or whatever and his mother and grandmother in the audience. And he said he had a moment of, this is not that bad. Yeah. You know, I'm getting booed off stage in front of my, my mother and my grandmother. And he said, after that, I was fearless. And it does, 
it does feel that way. Uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's Teddy Roosevelt or FDR that had that, the, the, to be in the arena that, um, yeah, your cold and timid souls that ne know neither victory nor defeat. And, and that to me, I'm grateful that for me in my life and my, there's so much of my life has been sort of ruled by fear and anxiety, but to me, the greatest fear was never attempting to oh, yeah. try. And that's really overcome all my fear of, of failure is the fear of, I just never even tried anything. And so that's been beneficial to me. Yeah. Stoic will judge success and failure, not on outcome, but on process. And uh, Stoic will ask the following question. No actual Stoic uh, actually asked this question, but it's one they should have asked. And, and it's, uh, I, I'm taking this uh, phrase, this uh, quotation from uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, autobiography. Uh, and the Stoic will ask, did you do what you could with what you had where you were? That simple. If you did that, you were a success even if it resulted in failure, because that's the standard we've got to measure you against. Did you do what you could with what you had where you were? That's the only way you can judge anybody's kind of be that what they did. And, and if you did that, bravo, bravo. But of course, there are people who, uh, who take that path I described. They never try anything hard because their fear of failure won't let them. And they need to overcome that. And th th there's uh, interesting ways in which they can do that. Well, I'm going to judge this uh, interview as a success. And um, I appreciate your time, Bill, and all your wisdom. And I I'm so grateful for the book and also the series on uh, waking up. I highly recommend both. And I'm going to get the, um, the Stoic Challenge. Uh, okay. I'm going to get that book as well. And uh, I appreciate it. You've been by my bedside uh, to, as the, in book form. For, uh, for a long time. And I've sent that book to a lot of friends and, and they're grateful for it too. Great, so wonderful. Ho I, hope it works for them. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bill. And thanks for your time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You got it. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts. <laughs>